Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, your host of the show today. You can check out us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Um, I have a guest with me today coming all the way from Chilliwack, British Columbia, and Canada, uh, Brother Isaac. And, and brother, please help me with your last name. I don't want to butcher it. Uh, so, uh, first of all, good morning. Uh, my surname is Ciarto. Ciarto. So it's, okay. it's, and you got the pronunciation right. It's all good. Uh, it's a Hungarian for belt maker. And my dad's originally from uh, Czechoslovakia, now Slovakia. Okay. And what I typically use is a reference to the Spanish or Italian word Ciarto. And typically people have heard of that word by now. So, okay. All right. Well, thanks for the clarification. Well, if you want to give a little bit of background about yourself, kind of, you know, what are some of your credentials and, and where are you coming from um, for our audience? That'd be great. Sure, sure. So uh, as as you heard, my name being Isaac, I'm from Chilliwack. Uh, Chilliwack is a small place just outside of uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, near the West Coast. I'm part of the confessional Reformed Baptist community here in Canada. Uh, I currently fellowship and am an accumulated member at the Free Grace Baptist Church also here in Chilliwack. Uh, the church has been pastored by Jim Butler for the better part of 25 years or so. Um, Pastor Butler was sent here by Dr. Richard Barcelos and the community in Southern California in the late 90s. And uh, therefore, we still have a lot of intimate connections with other Reformed Baptists and churches throughout uh, the West, especially uh, in the Southern California context. Um, as for myself, I'm fast approaching uh, 10 years of attendance. Uh, this past year, I passed eight years as a member uh, in formal standing in the church. Uh, I'm currently enrolled as a distance student through the MDiv program at the International Reformed Baptist Seminary in Mansfield, Texas, which has been a joy and a blessing this past year. Um, I want to encourage uh, and remind people to think about seminary and encourage people to think about IRBS, that I think IRBS is a very competitive option if you're a uh, young person or a Reformed Baptist that's thinking about these sorts of things, even if you're not thinking about full-time ministry, I can't recommend IRBS enough that uh, it's been a very interesting experience this past year. Um, I'm also going to be starting a uh, program through the Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina this fall. I'm hoping to get a master's in philosophy in addition to an apologetic certificate. And the goal then would be to get both a theological education, but also some apologetics that would enable me to communicate better with unbelievers. And prior to all this, uh, I had completed a Bachelor of Arts through a local university called the University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, uh, which is the next city over. Um, I did a political science major and an extended minor in history. Uh, to briefly summarize some autobiography, uh, I've, this is my fourth Canadian province. Uh, I've spent a good deal of time in my childhood in uh, evangelicalism and later the Independent Fundamental Baptist or IFB movement. Um, this will become very relevant for reasons that will become clear shortly. Uh, but uh, primarily, we were exposed to the IFB world uh, while living in Lennon, Ontario. Uh, we were part of a church called Bethel Baptist Church that was pastored by Wilbert Unger. And this church served as the printing arm of David Cloud's Way of Life literature. By being exposed at very early age to his Way of Life encyclopedia and various commentaries and various things, that would ultimately lead me down a particular path where um, embracing the independent Baptist approach to history, to hermeneutics, and all those sorts of things 
And basically, I spent the better part of a decade uh, at, uh, from that phase of my childhood onward uh, in the IFP world. However, uh, by God's grace, I was exposed to Reformed theology, Calvinism, and those sorts of things, and uh, ultimately became Reformed uh, in the early 2010s. And again, it's been a decade since that point. Um, I think of recent Reformed Baptist history and how stuff like the impassibility controversy in Arca in 2014 mm -hmm. and various other things that have developed have been pedagogically useful. Uh, pursuing a secular education while monitoring some of these theological controversies has been helpful because um, being, being exposed to these arguments, thinking in a more historical way, ultimately protected me from embracing a secular worldview while being um, in university. And so I credit this church, I credit the Reformed Baptist world. I think I would have apostatized if it wasn't for the exposure to confessional thought and that we have a reason for our faith and we have historical precedent for a Reformed faith. And as Pastor Butler is fond of saying, it's very important to be 16 ounces to the pound, uh, as opposed to this anti-intellectual, emotionally centric and mystical misrepresentation of historic Christian orthodoxy that passes uh, mm. evangelical Christianity today. Um, and then the other thing I'm going to quickly add before we proceed into the main body of the podcast is uh, to tell listeners, especially listeners in the United States, that there's a lot of exciting things happening in Western Canada. Uh, Free Grace has planted two churches now in BC over the last five or so years, uh, one of which is pastored by Michael Kirkpatrick in Surrey, uh, which is the Surrey Reformed Baptist Church. Uh, he's a Westminster Seminary in California and Institute of Reformed Baptist Studies alumni. Um, uh, so, And that's been going on for about five years, as I said. And then uh, within the last year or two, we've planted the Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in Armstrong, BC, which is near Vernon or Kelowna. It's about three hours inside the interior. And that's been pastored by Ryan Maljars. Uh, he is currently studying at CBTS uh, in Kentucky. And so the idea is to see more Reformed Baptist uh, stuff happen here in Canada. And we would appreciate the prayers of our American friends as we work to advance confessional theology and ultimately fight secularism in a Canadian context that desperately needs it. Great. Well, brother, thank you for that introduction. That one one of the things I enjoy about having guests um, on the show is, you know, building that connection with other brothers and other churches too. You get to learn and hear updates mm -hmm. from other places and and get to bless one another. So I, I appreciate that update. That's very helpful. Um, mm -hmm. But looking at kind of our, our topic today, we're going to be diving into a pretty controversial topic, still a controversial topic in the mm -hmm. evangelical world and even among quote unquote Calvinistic circles, dispensationalism. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be discussing that in uh, somewhat great depth today, looking at kind of an overview of the doctrine, looking at some uh, variants of it, and what are some of the biblical implications of it from a hermeneutical perspective. And then we want to look at a comparison at a high level between covenant theology and dispensationalism. Um, right. So brother, as we're looking at dispensationalism, what is it and you know what are some of the main tenets of the doctrine mm -hmm. system? Well, I'll just quickly add that one of the things I'm known for is an insatiable appetite for punnery. And uh, several people have reminded me to ensure that I dispensed of all pleasantries with dispensationalism, <laughs> among other things. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, I do have some uh, comments prepared as regards to the foundation of dispensationalism. Now, from the very get-go, uh, we need to be charitable, we need to be mm -hmm. clear, and we need to be fair. And yep. we need to realize as Reformed people, and especially 
for those that have grown up in a covenantal context, uh, in contrast to someone like myself who came into the reformed world from the outside, mm -hmm. as I explained a moment ago, um, that I realized some of these concepts and some of these assumptions might be foreign. But as you look at this other world, we need to allow for some spectrum, some diversity, and this notion that dispensationalism is not a monolith, uh, especially mm -hmm. because it's a relatively young theological movement. There's been a lot of shift and evolution for reasons that will become clear shortly. Uh, also, there are different flavors. So the independent Baptist flavor of dispensationalism that I grew up with would be somewhat distinct from what we see John MacArthur talking about mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. But we'll, we'll get to those details later. Um, in the first place, though, at a foundational level, uh, we need to appreciate that there's a church Israel distinction in dispensational theology. So rather than a fulfillment motif that we emphasize in covenant, dispensationalists have a hard, hard distinction on that point. Uh, further, uh, dispensation, uh, for example, when you look at Ephesians 1 and how the word is used in a couple different contexts, dispensationalism emphasizes time periods. So this notion of mostly distinctive, redemptive economies. So again, in covenant theology, we emphasize a continuity. This We look at second one in chapter 7, paragraph 3, mm -hmm. and we talk about farther steps that lead to the full discovery of the gospel. In the dispensational mind, uh, there's like these artificial uh, walls between entire areas of scripture, and we can't go back and forth. We can't do typology. We can't use subsequent revelation to interpret antecedent revelation. We can't, uh, because we have these walls called dispensations that divide the Bible like this. Um, a big thing for dispensationalists would be the literal normal hermeneutic or just the literal hermeneutic. So in particular, this becomes relevant when you look at the book of Revelation and you look at eschatological matters. And this is where dispensationalism is automatically futurist and automatically premillennial. Uh, now, again, in covenant theology, you could potentially be a historic premill. You could mm -hmm. be post, you could be amill. And there's more variety or flexibility within the confessional framework. Dispensationalism is inherently pre-mill. It just goes together and you can't be one without the other in, in the dispensational scheme. Um, future fulfillment of both Old Testament and New Testament prophecies among either ethnic Jews or in the modern state of Israel. Uh, hence the emphasis on, the, and, and I'm sure people have heard this by now, this notion that the founding of the Israeli state in May of 48 was somehow eschatologically significant or fulfilled mm. uh, a prophecy. Uh, then, uh, again, dividing redemptive history into distinct uh, epochs. So uh, Schofield, uh, C.I. Schofield, who did the Schofield Reference Bible in the early 20th century, uh, advocated seven dispensations. And one of a very high-profile independent Baptist writer by the name of Dave Cloud, uh, which I mentioned earlier, uh, he uses nine dispensations. And essentially, uh, he'll divide... Uh, the innocence of man, which Genesis 1 to 3, from uh, man under conscience, which is Adam until the flood. He'll then do man under human government, which is Genesis 9 through 11. Then promise, which is Genesis 12 through 50. So already you have four dispensations just within the book of Genesis alone, mm -hmm. followed by man under law, which is Exodus until the end of the Old Testament, followed by man under grace or the church age. So basically the book of Acts to Jude. Finally, tribulation, millennium, and eternal state, which would be Revelation. And that's another thing that we'll get into later, which is this law grace motif uh, and this whole idea that we're not under law, but we're under grace in a New Testament age, which betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of the moral law.
Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And what's interesting too is you do see even some overlap with uh, some dispensational thought with covenantal theology thought. You do mm-hmm. see they do believe in the covenants, but you mm-hmm. do notice that there are a lot of covenants that are left out of the discussion too. Like you don't see much discussion of the Davidic covenant, at least from what I've seen, mm-hmm. um, or things like that. It's the Abrahamic covenant becomes central to the understanding, especially as it relates to the land promises that are allegedly going to come later. Right, right. Now, I, I'll quickly offer a caveat on that point. Uh, if you look at Sam Renahan's Mystery of Christ, uh, Sam will argue that the Abrahamic covenant is foundational to Mosaic and Davidic. In other words, the Mosaic and Davidic covenants will add some very important elements and uh, so, for example, a legal system in the case of Moses and a stable kingdom right. in the case of Davidic. So there is some merit to placing that priority from a biblical theology perspective as yep. we navigate the Old Testament and move forward. Yep. However, as we'll find out later, dispensationalism has other motives for their obsession with the Abrahamic covenant mm-hmm. in terms of, again, this Christian Zionism and uh, the very fleshly, or not fleshly, but rather carnal or physical emphasis in terms of how things are fulfilled in a future scenario. Yeah, yeah, you're going to see, like you said, there's not really any language of fulfillment. It's everything is worked within these dispensations. God works differently in those dispensations. And, you know, if you see an alleged inconsistency between them, well, it's because God is working differently now than he did back then. Right. And it, yeah, and it's very different than how we understand covenant theology, which would see uh, God is working, even though there might be some things on the surface that might be seemingly different. Ultimately, it's all part of one redemptive plan. Um, so, right, you're right. There's there's this hard stop that you see between those dispensations. Mm-hmm. It's like one God cannot reach back into another dispensation and have a whole lot to do, at least, with what's going mm-hmm. on in the current dispensation. Right. And, and that, that, that's another point uh, to be said. So sometimes dispensationalists will use the language of, quote, parenthetical church age, unquote. Yeah. And, and essentially, the notion is that we're in this interlude, this mm-hmm. temporary uh, period where uh, a church is being built, Gentiles are being evangelized and this sort of thing. But technically, this is an interruption or a parenthesis or otherwise an excursus. That is the exception to this long-standing relationship between God and ethnic Israel. And so if you think of church life as parenthetical or otherwise this overture, rather than the fulfillment of something inferior to it, that's then going to, again, affect how you view scripture. And it will also have a host of practical implications, which we'll get to. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, we'll carry on, brother. Yeah. So, so in expanding on this foundation, um, the uh, let's make some observations here uh, in terms of the broader evangelical community, as as my brother was talking about. Uh, dispensationalism is something of a default assumption, I would say, outside the Reformed community, outside of a Westminster Federalist Presbyterian or our Reformed Baptist circles or a Dutch context with the three forms of unity. Uh, even if a church does not use the word dispensationalism, even if they don't necessarily articulate it in a fully realized way, as you would see somebody like John MacArthur or C.I. Schofield or David Cloud or some of these other people talk about it, the fact remains that those assumptions are in play 
And sometimes it's discreet, it's subtle, but it's nevertheless there. Um, as I alluded to uh, earlier, we as covenant theologians are very happy to use subsequent revelation to eliminate antecedent revelation. Yes. Uh, the classic example is Romans 5 relative to Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, again, and another factor is the word concept fallacy. So even though the word uh, covenant is not mentioned in Genesis 2 and 3, we nevertheless see a covenant of works there. And part of why we see a covenant of works and all that stuff going on is because of the anti-type and the explanation that Paul offers in Romans 5. So we would use a New Testament passage to make sense of an Old Testament historical narrative, such as in the case of Genesis. Dispensationalism would balk at doing that, though I think typically dispensationalists like a John MacArthur would affirm imputation and would mm -hmm. in some way, shape or form still hold on to a Romans 5 explanation of what goes on in Genesis. But in the absence of covenant theology, it's tough because that's almost like an exception to where there would be a hesitancy to do that in other contexts. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, it's ironic, though, because on the one hand, dispensationalists will argue, well, we're literal. We're letting the Bible speak for itself. We're not allegorizing prophecy. We're not spiritualizing. Uh, we're not theological liberals, right? Um, this, uh, this very weird accusation that Calvinists are borrowing a liberal or allegorical hermeneutic for the medieval church in being Amil or something like that. And yet, like I said, I would suggest that you're not letting the Bible speak when you mm. refuse to see typology and you use dispensations to create artificial barriers between different aspects of redemptive history. Yeah. Yeah. It, it again, it goes back to the hermeneutical question. You know, how are you looking at the scriptures? What are you coming to the scriptures with? And that's, I think, really the fundamental difference uh, between right. us and, and our dispensational friends. Mm -hmm. Coming back to Sam Renahan's book, uh, one of the things I found very helpful in Mystery of Christ was this whole conversation of continuity and discontinuity. Mm -hmm. So, again, for us as Reformed Baptists in particular, when we talk about cradle Baptist covenant theology, we would talk about both, that there are certain things that continue into the new covenant economy, and there are certain things that are discontinued. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we would talk about the abrogation of the ceremonial law. However, yeah. we would say that the moral law is still abiding and universal and objective and transcendent, that the Decalogue has a trans-covenantal application and mm -hmm. nature to it. Well, again, for dispensationalists, some dispensationalists would relegate at least the Sabbath, if not the entirety of the Decalogue, to being something of a ceremonial law. This notion where sometimes you need to have laws repeated in the New Testament for those laws to be reaffirmed in a separate church age dispensational setting. Uh, and as well, this sort of hermeneutic or approach then impacts how Anabaptist or Mennonite will approach the Decalogue. So mm. some people will go to Matthew 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, as we all know, mm -hmm. and will posit that Jesus is superseding the Mosaic law. Right. And therefore, we need to have kingdom ethics mm. uh, based on Matthew 5. And that's like a law of love and of grace, as opposed to being under law in that old covenant economy and setting. And so, again, huge implications. So this will impact your view of the Sabbath. Uh, and in some cases, this will impact your views on things like pacifism or uh, just war or uh, the death penalty or some of these other areas by virtue of how you, the grid that you take into the Sermon on the Mount. 
Yeah, that's very interesting you bring that up because growing up, I've I don't know if I was taught that, but I remember hearing that it was like, oh, Jesus is now, you know, presenting this love your enemy mindset. And that, you know, has implications for how we're to fight or with self-defense or things like that. And that's not at all, they're not pitted against each other. No. Jesus is just simply explaining what the law really meant because it had been so diluted and watered down. And essentially the meaning had been lost. Uh, by the pagan religious leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, so Jesus was just saying, here's really what it means. It's really, you know, this is fulfilling the law. You guys say it's this way, but it's actually this way. I'm just right. telling you what it really means. Right. Well, you look at Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus didn't come to break the law or destroy the law, but rather to fulfill it. Yep. And also the other thing we have to remember is that in uh, Matthew, uh, we see Jesus quoting from the Mosaic law on right. several occasions. So yep. love your neighbor is taken from Leviticus. So this notion of, again, a distinct redemptive economies uh, in some cases, or this notion where, again, that's a different dispensation. It's just to say that uh, there's a lot of assumptions and there's a lot of philosophical stuff that's going on in the mind of a dispensational interpreter prior to coming to the text. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So then earlier I alluded to uh, the history of dispensationalism and the idea that it's not monolithic, that it's a spectrum of thought that there has been gradual development over the long term. And so at this stage, I'll uh, jump into this area with some more detail. Um, th the analogies I would use here are as regards to the development of feminism and of Pentecostalism. Just as we see uh, evolution in the feminist world from, say, education rights with Mary Wollstonecraft, voting rights, followed by economic rights, followed by now we're, we're trying to socially construct gender in the case of postmodern feminism. And just like as you see with Pentecostalism, how Pentecostalism gave way to a charismatic movement that was like a second wave and distinct, followed by the televangelist era vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, John Hagee or Benny Hinn or those sorts of fellas. And now we have the new Apostolic Reform Reformation or NAR, where NAR is something radical and distinct from the original Assembly of God Pentecostalism in the early 20th century. Similarly, we have to appreciate that dispensationalism has taken a long, windy road over the past two centuries or so. So uh, the following is a quote, which is, I'm going to be reading this out loud from David Cloud's uh, a book. Uh, he did uh, a book called Understanding Bible Prophecy, which was part of his uh, advanced Bible study series. So this was a discipleship curriculum that was used by some independent Baptists. And the way he breaks it down is as follows, quote, Traditional dispensationalism, C.I. Schofield, Clarence Larkin, and Schaefer. Some of the points of this theology beyond the things we have already noted are as follows. One, Israel is on the earth, the church is in heaven, and the two never meet even in eternity. Mm. Two, some of the classical dispensationalists thought that there are two ways of salvation, works in the Old Testament, and faith in the New Testament. Schaefer taught that there are two new covenants one with Israel, and one with the church. Wow. Modified dispensationalism, represented by Charles Ryrie, John Valvoort, Dwight Pentecost, and Dallas Seminary. I'll interrupt Cloud to say that I think Dallas Seminary, I, I don't know, but this might be the same as Dallas Theological Seminary. I, I, I'm just not that sure offhand. That sounds right, but yeah. Yeah, well, well, in, well, in reality, we know that DTS is basically dispensationalism HQ in the <laughs> modern context. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I'll, I'll carry on with what Cloud said here, which is, quote, Israel and the church will be together after the millennium. 
There's only one way to salvation in both Testaments, faith. There's only one new covenant that is shared by both Israel and the church. And so I'll interrupt Cloud again to say right away, you can already see movement to where now you're shifting from very distinct redemptive economies, such as salvation by works in the OT, to now that sounds a lot more covenantal. That sounds a lot closer mm -hmm. to what we would hold to already with these modifications in the middle of the 20th century. Well, you now, see the premillennialism in there too. That's really you know, that's, yes, of the course. Millennium plays a key factor in this view, regardless of what they believe about salvation here. Yeah, and then further modified. So Cloud uses the language of further modified. Um, I would say that others probably would use words like progressive, i.e., a progressive dispensationalism. But nevertheless, Cloud calls it further modified. Uh, he cites Robert Saucy, Craig Blasing, and Daryl Bach. And he goes on to say, quote, in recent years, some men have made even more modifications of the dispensational view. They state the following. One, the church is not apprentices, but the first step towards establishing the kingdom of God. Two, God does not have two purposes, e.g. Israel and the church. There's only one purpose and both of them share in it. Three, there is no distinction between Israel and the church in the future state. Four, the church will reign with Jews in glorified bodies on earth during the millennium, but they still insist that the OT prophecies regarding Israel will be fulfilled in the millennium by converted ethnic Jews. They do not see the church as a new Israel or believe that OT prophecies are fulfilled in the church. So even then, a progressive or, quote, further modified dispensationalist would ultimately balk at what we hold to in our confessional uh, covenant theology. Now, would Michael, you say uh, that um, that would be the third view is closer to maybe more of a MacArthurite kind of view, in your opinion? Hard to say, uh, mm -hmm. because I'm not deeply familiar with MacArthur's current position. Uh, I in, in my notes, I referred to how MacArthur called himself a, a leaky dispensationalist very yeah. famously at a interview that he did in 2007 with Piper and Taylor at Desiring God Conference. So the, the idea becomes that um, when we talk about a leaky dispensationalism or progressive dispensationalism or some of these other developments, and now we have new covenant theology and we have other right. things that are going on in the evangelical landscape, it's harder and harder to say where people are landing. But ultimately, I think Sabbatarianism is the ultimate litmus test in all of this. Uh, mm -hmm. Typically, NCT and leaky, progressive, whatever kind of dispensationalism you want to call yourself, uh, typically you're going to be balking at the Sabbath. And typically, as was alluded to a moment ago, you're going to hold on to your premillennial eschatology. So there are certain tells, even if there's been modification, even if you no longer believe that there's work salvation in the OT, there are tells. There are things that will just be a dead giveaway that at least you're not confessional and you right. embrace some sort of variant thereof. Yep. So, uh, Michael Vlock, uh, in uh, Dispensations, uh, or I should say Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs and Common Myths, 2008, disassociates himself from John Nelson Darby. Now, this is where I do want to admonish the brethren that we have to be careful with genetic fallacy. And we need to be careful with an overuse of the dispensationalism only started in the 1830s thing. And mm. the reason why I'm going to offer this caution is to say that most people have never heard of the Plymouth Brethren or John Nelson Darby. And especially outside confessional circles, we need to grapple with how evangelicals 
do not care in a meaningful way about historical precedent. They do not care that the seeker-sensitive approach to church is so novel and frankly uh, an innovation that has limited, if any, precedent at all. So in covenant theology and in confessional thought, we place a great emphasis on precedent, right? That we can see traces of certain doctrinal developments throughout church history. We celebrate classical theism. We celebrate Nicene Trinity. We celebrate the notion that our confessions borrow language from the historical creeds. The postmodern seeker-sensitive evangelical is not even trained to have those sensitivities or those appetites. So this notion of, oh, well, dispensationalism has only existed for 10% of church history, i.e. 200 years out of 2000. That's somewhat true, but it's not the most useful point rhetorically. Right. Yeah, yeah, especially um, it, it like in that uh, that PDF you sent me, that discussion came up a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. this notion that it was just in the 1800s that dispensationalism started. Mm -hmm. um, I think what you could argue is that there are probably tenets of it that show up earlier, but the system that we know of today, by and large, was more of a 19th century invention. I mean, you're going to have, um, yeah, uh, yeah you're, it's it's definitely more of the, the pre-mill dispensationalism that we see today. I think you're finding more in the 19th century, but I, I would never limit all of the tenets of it to that. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and the thing about this too is, uh, so uh, for context, I had sent my brother uh, some material from David Cloud ahead of the interview. And in one of the articles or one of the contexts, uh, Cloud alludes to, I think it was Irenaeus and one other church father. Uh, and the thing was that, um, that Cloud makes much of how a couple of these church fathers uh, have a fourfold division in scripture. So what Cloud basically does is anybody who's ever divided the scripture into distinct redemptive economies or epochs or however we want to call it is a prototypical dispensationalist. Now, the issue with that is that Cloud and others potentially, again, I don't know, but possibly are assuming that covenant theology is monocovenantal. Right. And and what I mean by that is basically assuming a hard flattening across Old Covenant versus New Covenant to where it's either you have these seven artificial boxes or you have one box for all. Yep. And so the idea is we need to pause it and say, no, that's like a false dichotomy. That's a false dilemma. There are other options such as a 1689 federalism, again, continuity and discontinuity. And also, just because maybe an early church father broke up the scriptures into different times, that's not antithetical to covenant theology. We believe that in principle. We just don't believe it works out the same way that they conclude it does. Right. So, Yeah. And then to add one more footnote to that area is uh, Matthew Stamper is a low-profile uh, author that I wasn't very familiar with up until recently, but he had uh, published a book in 2010 called, quote, covenantal dispensationalism, unquote. And so it's to say that, again, especially in recent years, there's, again, uh, New Covenant Theology, that there's, there's numerous attempts to either reconcile the two or adapt or synthesize, but ultimately all these options fall short of what our confession would teach as regards to law or covenant or Sabbath or some of these particulars. Yes, absolutely.
Well, uh, kind of moving on to digging deeper into the presuppositions of, of the dispensationalist mm -hmm. view, and we've alluded to this a little bit already, but the hermeneutic of dispensationalism seems to come from this literalistic mindset of the scriptures. We can't spiritualize uh, these texts. We have mm -hmm. to read them literally. Um, and I think that's where you see these divisions coming from to some extent. So Israel means Israel, church means church. We can't really read much else into that. The analogy of faith really is not uh, important. No. Um, so why would we see this hermeneutic as problematic? Well, uh, for starters, uh, it's inconsistently applied, even by dispensational mm. advocates themselves, uh, I would argue. Uh, and then further, um, scripture itself will use a variety of rhetorical devices and or um, uh, means of communication that are simply not meant to be taken literally. So, for example, the use of apocalyptic or symbolic or cosmic language in context such as the Olivet Discourse or Acts 2 or in uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, when we talk about the, the sky rolling as a scroll or some right. of these sorts of things, mm -hmm. um, it doesn't automatically and necessarily follow that we should expect to see a simultaneous solar eclipse and lunar eclipse and this sort of a thing. So it's to say that there's some inconsistency there. Um, I'm going to use an example that uh, Dr. Scheider gave in a recent eschatology class at IRBS. Um, he mentioned this literal hermeneutic, and he gave a very basic example, but this is indicative. Uh, he went to Genesis 2 and 3 and noted the threat of death, dying you shall die, in Genesis 2.17. Now, when the original sin happens... Adam and Eve did not literally die right. in Genesis 3, 7. Mm -hmm. Now, we understand that there was a spiritual death that began to take place in that moment. Right. And we understand that ultimately Adam and Eve did die physically, but many, many, many years later. However, there was a beginning of atrophy, whereas prior to sin, there was no atrophy and there was no decay. So again, dying, you shall die. But then... Again, if I wanted to be obsessive with this literal approach, I would say, well, this is contradictory, or this doesn't make sense, or they didn't die. And it's like right from the get-go, the fact that they didn't physically die forces you to look beyond physical death and find another way to understand what is actually happening in Genesis 3. Mm -hmm. So that's, in, that's intended to illustrate. Now, take that scenario and apply that to Revelation and to many other contexts where Again, from my view, this sort of hyper-literalism just gets in the way of putting stuff together, putting the bigger picture together, mm -hmm. and thus appreciating what texts are actually saying. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, yeah, because, I mean, if you're taking that in a literal face, you would have to say that the scriptures are inconsistent. Because, look, they didn't die. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Well, they're still alive. They're still breathing. They live for hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean you have to go beyond and look at a broader picture at that point and see and look for further evidence elsewhere to help understand what this is, or you just have to accept it as absurd. And this can't be true. Right now uh, I allude to first Corinthians 15 in my notes. And so earlier I mentioned Romans five as well. So in fact, uh, there are several hymns uh, that make reference to quote in Adam all die. Uh, so again, if we demand a literal take, or we suggest that first Corinthians 15 is in a different dispensation. And then again, we can't use 
1 Corinthians 15 in Adam all die to explain what's actually going on in Genesis 2.17 or Genesis 3.7. Uh, we're, again, we're preventing ourselves. We're, uh, our method is crippling our ability to connect dots and come up with a theological interpretation of scripture that harmonizes all the relevant biblical data because our presupposition prevents us from looking at that subsequent data. Now, our uh, dispensationalism is not inherently Arminian, nor is it inherently Calvinist. Mm. There are both synergist Arminians and monergistic Calvinists within the dispensational world. However, David Cloud is illustrative of a particular style of dispensationalism that is hostile to Reformed theology, mm. hostile to Calvinism, and hostile to monergism. So elsewhere, he and many others would take the reference to word to words like all in 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 6, or Titus 2, 11, as being all without exception, rather than all without distinction. And so that's part of their case for a provisional, hypothetical, or indefinite, yet unlimited atonement, uh, hence balking at particular redemption, or mm -hmm. what we would call limited atonement. And so... Uh, when we use words like everlasting, right? And again, a big part of dispensational discourse is that uh, the Abrahamic covenant, for example, is eternal, it's everlasting, it's unbreakable. And again, they'll use the emphasis on everlasting in the Old Testament to justify that view. And just as um, someone like David Cloud would reject the all without distinction explanation of the word all in those soteriological contexts, he would also reject our explanation that the word everlasting is covenantally conditioned. So now, again, for covenant theology, we look at scripture, and in particular, we look at the prophetic witness that God executed something of a divorce of the old covenant theocratic Israeli, uh, Israeli economy. The idea being that the old covenant is pregnant with the new covenant, as Sam Renahan says in his book, and the idea being mm -hmm. that there's not a terminus. Uh, Israel is typological at that point. So again, that's what we would do. And again, we're looking forward to the book of Hebrews. And we talked about having a better covenant with better promises, a better mediator and a better hope again, in lieu of the book of Hebrews. But again, if my mentality is, well, Hebrews is different dispensation and the church is a parent, a parent is a parenthetical and those sorts of things, I'm going to look at um, everlasting and be like, well, everlasting means everlasting. And therefore, we're in this interruption, and I have to park those fulfillments somewhere. So hence, millennial kingdom, tribulational period, eternal state, mm -hmm. and a notion that the old covenant will be essentially rebooted at some point in time, in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, no, you have to. You'd have to reread those entire covenantal statements, like in Hebrews eight, uh, seven, eight, mm -hmm. nine, and ten. Like what does what does that even mean in a dispensational worldview? You'd have to challenge them with that, right? So this is where, if we take a step back from all this, the central issue with this so-called literal hermeneutic is that it rejects the analogy of faith, which we've alluded to here, rejects the analogy of scripture. Uh, it sometimes prevents people from seeing one word in different ways in different contexts. Another classic example is cosmos or world. In John 3.16 and John 1 and some of these other contexts where the term world can be used in multiple ways. It can sometimes mean the physical world. It can sometimes mean the secular uh, uh, worldly system. Uh, sometimes it's uh, fleshly temptations like in uh, 1 John 2 
right? And yet, if I flatten distinctions and I'm literal or excessively literal, uh, it prevents me from letting words communicate things in a variety of ways. Uh, part of it then comes down to uh, what I would call rhetorical theory or communications theory at the level of forcing the Bible to function in a hyper sort of textbook manner when mm -hmm. that's just not how scripture is designed. Right. Uh, scripture is designed to be very expressive and illustrative rather than textbook. And so with that in mind, we can't demand this sort of newspaper style literalism from scripture. Um, another example with the word Israel is that in Romans 9 verse 6, it says that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Right. Well, if Israel is Israel and that's all Israel is, how do we make sense of this? So again, the word Israel clearly denotes two different things mm -hmm. for Paul. And that doesn't then automatically infer some sort of anti-Semitism or replacement or supersession, which are all very common dispensational accusations of the covenant theology community. It's just to say that, look, we have to let the Bible speak. And right. Paul is very clear. <laughs> yeah. Just let the Bible speak for itself. It's not that hard to do. <laughs> right. So, and earlier I made reference to second one in seven, three, um, for those dispensational listeners who might be concerned that I am uh, misrepresenting or potentially overstating certain things, or maybe you might say, oh, well, that's not my dispensationalism. I'm, I'm going to modify my particular view. Uh, my effort, again, is to be as charitable as possible and to appreciate those differences. It's impossible to cover every conceivable variant of dispensationalism yep. in a format like this. Um, but it's just to say that for you dispensational listeners, I would invite you to read second one in chapter seven. Look at the biblical references and just think this through in terms of does 7.3 in particular do a better job of representing the trajectory of the Old Testament? And if not, why not? And that would be my admonition to the dispensational listeners to think through what the second one is actually saying. Yep, absolutely. All right. So kind of tagging on to that principle of the literal understanding of scripture, one particular area that this is done commonly in dispensational circles is the term everlasting yep. as it relates to the Abrahamic covenant. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I'm going to quote from MacArthur here real quick because he alludes to this. Yep. Um, so he says, quote, what will be the conditions on earth during that time? Well, politically, and we'll say more about this in the future, politically, universal rule, absolute rule, righteous, just rule. Spiritually, Israel will be converted. Israel will be restored to the land. Israel will be the nation that leads the world. She will have the land promise to Abraham. Mm -hmm. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Christ will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Israel will be blessed. She will be again united to God. It's a special time for Israel, end quote. So mm -hmm. you can see allusion to this here as it relates to MacArthur. Mm -hmm. She will have the land promised to Abraham. And this is an allusion back to the Abrahamic mm -hmm. covenant where God says that uh, the land will be given to uh, his inheritance uh, in an everlasting way. Um, one pushback I would say to that, and, and there'll be a couple of places we can touch on here. One, we look at Joshua 20, 21, 43 through 45, which I think is very clear that the land promises to Abraham were fulfilled. Yep. Uh, it says, so the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken 
to the house of Israel. All came to pass. So mm -hmm. God was setting the stage here for Joshua to fulfill the land promises. And we can see this starting to take place in chapter one of Joshua. Um, and then, mm -hmm. you know, going back to Genesis 17, eight, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give to you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, but again, if you read this passage literally, everlasting means everlasting, forever. There's no break in that. It's forever and ever. Um, but I think there's other places that we can see where that everlasting is used in a covenantally conditioned way. Um, a couple of examples of that are in the book of Exodus. You look at Exodus 27, 20 through 21. It talks about Aaron and his sons shall tend uh, it from the evening to the morning for the Lord, talking about the Arianic priesthood. And it says it shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that the Arianic covenant or I'm sorry, the Arianic priesthood did not remain, you know, with Christ coming on the scene. Hebrews 10, mm -hmm. Hebrews 9, etc. Hebrews 8. Christ right. is now that high priest going into the heavenly places for us with his own blood. We mm -hmm. know that does not uh, mean forever. So it's conditioned upon the old covenant, which that Arianic priesthood was tied to um, fundamentally. So again, this is mm -hmm. why we have to, we read scripture in light of other clear passages. Our confession is very clear. Chapter one, paragraph six about this, of looking at clear places to interpret the less clear. Um, so having that hermeneutic in mind helps us to understand these passages better. But just merely reading a passage and saying, well, it's everlasting, it says everlasting, doesn't mean that necessarily. You have to unpack that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So a uh, couple of things here to say about, well, everlasting means everlasting, that's all everlasting means. Um, I'm going to use uh, a bit of a crude analogy, but hopefully this will help illustrate the point. Um, I've seen married people talk about how they want to be in love forever. Mm -hmm. And yet we know that people are not given in marriage in heaven, as Christ explains. Right. So obviously, even if technically that marriage is dissolved at death till death do us part, the hope would be that if both spouses are believers, they will see each other in a glorified state in heaven. And I'm sure there'll still be a degree of, friendship or relationship it just won't be the exact same thing as yep. a physical marriage relationship that we have in this life so we understand in a context like that that the word forever has multiple layers yep. or multiple levels and there's a conditionality depending on which aspect we're talking about so yep. same thing here when we talk about covenantally conditioned we need to ask ourselves uh bigger picture questions about Again, the redemptive economy and the context for the word everlasting. Mm -hmm. uh, brother, you made a good point that the land promises are previously fulfilled and definitively so at the tail end of Joshua, that the conquest has occurred, dispossession has occurred, the promised land is empty, and now the 12 tribes are going to disperse and um, uh, cultivate and take over the promised land as described and as promised, for sure. But then concentrating on the issue of land and seed promise, uh, again, these are aspects of the old covenant economy that the kingdom of a theocratic state was never intended to be eternal. Coming back to what Sam Renahan says, the idea of old covenant as uh, pregnant with the new covenant, that when we look at Genesis 3.15, everything and, and following, everything that we see in the Old Testament is intended to anticipate 
that messianic consciousness and that messianic age to come, that the old covenant was always meant to anticipate a new covenant era where Gentiles would be included in a spiritual and universal kingdom. We have a foreshadowing of Gentile inclusion as early as Genesis 9 and so on. Uh, Isaiah, for example, speaks of this in multiple places. Um, it, it, we talk about the servant songs of Isaiah, for example. So this notion of a, dare I say, prototypical Zionism just isn't there. That's just not how the Old Testament works. Now, if we appreciate how the Mosaic Covenant augments and expands on God's governance, so what I was alluding to before, that the Mosaic Covenant adds to the Abrahamic Covenant at that level, we need to appreciate how Deuteronomy 22 and other passages like it explain Israel's presence in the Promised Land as conditional on obedience. As an aside, this is a piece of evidence that supports the idea that the old covenant is in some way, shape, or form a republished covenant of works, as opposed to an administration of right. the covenant of grace, yep. which is very important when we're talking to our Presbyterian friends mm -hmm. um, for, for other reasons that can be dealt with in a different podcast, I suppose. But the idea is that um, Israel's conditionality, Israel was at risk of being vomited out of the land just like how the Canaanites that preceded them were vomited out of the land. We see that language of vomit, that, that um, illustration used in Leviticus 18, 24 to 30. And ultimately, we see the historical fulfillment of this. When Assyria invades the northern tribes, Babylon invades the southern tribes, and ultimately in the conquest of Jerusalem and the torching of the temple in AD 70. Mm -hmm. These are fulfillments of the covenant curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And we should see a very clear uh, pattern in terms of the uprooting in Deuteronomy um, 22 that was promised and what actually happened. Uh, as Isaiah 55 10 says, God's word does not return void. God right. keeps his promises both mm -hmm. for good and for bad. And it should not surprise us that the covenantally faithful God is nevertheless faithful in his covenant judgments. Yeah. No, and another thing too, if you take the term everlasting to be literal, there can be no way that God could kick them out of the land because that breaks up the cycle of everlasting. That's not forever, is it? It stops at one point and then it picks up again. So even they would have to really work through the curses aspect of it. Now the people mm -hmm. are exiled to Babylon. Now the, the Assyrian, the, uh, the Persians, are uh, holding them captive, etc. For years, not hundreds of years, maybe even, mm -hmm. not in a, uh, and they're not even in their land. I mean, you have Daniel and Esther, and then it isn't until Nehemiah that he even gets permission of the king to go back and rebuild the temple. But I mean, there's so much mm -hmm. time that's passed. Then you just taking a, a literal, temporal mm -hmm. understanding of of uh, everlasting doesn't work even just on the how the covenant was executed. Right. Now, the other thing I want to emphasize is that, ironically, even as dispensationalists will sometimes uh, indict us in terms of flattening distinctions too much, I would suggest that what dispensationalism does is undermine the superiority of the New Covenant, mm -hmm. because what makes the New Covenant better, when you look at Jeremiah 31, for example, is precisely this point, the lack of conditionality, the fact that we're safe in the Father's hands, 
Mm. We're safe in the son's hands, which is what John 10, 27 to 30 says. So Israel could sin their way out of land promise. We can't sin our way out of the antitype of that. Right. And so we should, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, for example, we should be celebrating the lack of conditionality. When we sing hymns that say uh, things to the effect of assurance or uh, those sorts of things, part of gospel assurance is we're not relying on ourselves the way that Israel had to rely on itself. Yes. Yeah. And and if you see it as a covenant of works, the old covenant, yes, they would have had to rely on themselves. Their well-being depended on their obedience. They disobeyed. They were judged. They obeyed. They lived. That was the basic tenet yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. So even if our spiritual lives are somewhat comparable to the ups and downs of the book of Judges, we should be very excited that we have a great high priest who is so much better than that uh, ironic priesthood and so on and so forth. So uh, to follow up on MacArthur's quote, uh, I had added a, a few other notes here. Um, reintroducing old covenant dynamics in the future for mm. me is just a huge problem that cannot be overcome. Yep. So again, when I look at Hebrews, I look at various uh, biblical evidences. New covenant is supposed to be better than the old covenant. That's just for me, that's just as plain as can be. However, to go backwards in redemptive history at a future point, such as in a future millennium, is a difficulty for me because it would somewhat weaken the superiority of the new covenant. And further, uh, when we look at um, the emphasis on people without distinction, so not everyone, we're not universalists, but all kinds of people, uh, regardless of people, tongue, nation, all those categories in Revelation 5 and 7, it remains to be seen or demonstrated exegetically as to what makes ethnic Israel so distinct at that future point. Um, when, again, there seems to be an emphasis on, again, Ephesians 2, where Christ dies to negate some of those differences and unify everyone into a body of Christ. Mm. There's not two bodies of Christ. There's not an ethnic body and then a soteriological body. There's just the body of Christ based on my reading of Ephesians 2. So again, for me, I just struggle a lot in terms of forcing these assumptions into text and then being prevented from just letting things speak for themselves. And then as well, appreciating the covenantal, soteriological or Christological beauty of certain things, such as in Ephesians 2. Uh, one other thing I'll add at this juncture is a comment about Romans eleven twenty six. 26. Uh, there's a reference to how, quote, all Israel will be saved. Mm -hmm. And uh, just recently, I, I had to look at this uh, in readings. And what I would say about that is, even from my position, which is something of a tentative Augustinian amillennialism, I'm a bit ambivalent about this. Um, in the literature, there's people that have gone both ways on this in terms of whether or not this is an actual revival in Israel or whatever. Um, I'm fine with leaning towards the possibility of a less than universal revival in Israel where ethnic Israelites or Israeli uh, citizens are converted at a future point, but I would place that in the bucket of great commission fulfillment rather than something that is inherently significant, such as in a dispensational scheme. In yeah. other words, it, 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 what I'm trying to get at is even if that were true, that doesn't prove or substantiate some of these other points that we've alluded to here that are essential to what dispensationalism is. Yeah. And, and I'm kind of in that 
same boat, I guess. I, you know, whether all Israel is saved, I could go either way. I'm not convinced either way, but I don't see it as a problem for my covenant theology. You know, if right. God chooses all Israel to be saved, they will be saved in the same way we are under Christ, under the new covenant. If he wants to deal with them in a, in a special way by saving an entire nation like that, that that's not a problem mm -hmm. for me. Right. Um, so, uh, carrying on. Yep. So looking at, oh, I'm sorry. Were you going to say something else? No. All right. So another common place that we see kind of, again, diving into the, the, uh, the hermeneutical aspect of it is the book of Zechariah. MacArthur mm -hmm. has used this book. Um, Cloud, I believe used this as well in the, mm -hmm. in what you sent me. Um, yeah because of the i think it's because of the vivid language of restoration and salvation of israel they see mm -hmm. this as proof that this is somehow alluding to some kind of future state where israel will be uh saved defended from its enemies and is reestablished um so i mm -hmm. want to look at a couple of places or several places within the book in light of a analogy of faith understanding to show that this is not the case um i can't remember what passage um MacArthur specifically alluded to it wasn't too long ago he's he started talking about Zechariah and that you know you can't read uh that this particular part of Zechariah and come away uh not being a dispensationalist or something like that <laughs> um but what we see is a lot of Christological language as I was preparing for this I read through the entire book and I was <laughs> just kind of astounded at how much Christological messianic language is really there <laughs> tied with the salvation of Israel. Um, and I think that mm -hmm. is absolutely key. You can't read this merely as a uh, literalist understanding without skipping over those clear futuristic uh, aspects of the book, talking about Christ, uh, the Messiah. Um, looking at chapter six, and I'm not reading, I'm not going to be reading extensive passages here, but just kind of hitting these at a high level. We see chapter six talking about Joshua, Joshua being crowned, right? Well, mm -hmm. it couldn't be literally about the uh, the leader Joshua from the book of Joshua. Joshua had mm -hmm. died at this point. Um, but we do know that Christ's name, Yeshua, is essentially uh, the name for Joshua. And he's mm -hmm. crowned this king. Um, and so I think you can see a clear picture of, of Christ here. Uh, any future yeah. building in the temple you know, is not needed since Christ is now our high priest for Jew and Gentile. right? And all of those who receive him by faith are really the children of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, as Romans 4 says. Um, so we have a new and better Josh, uh, Joshua, that is Christ. Um, and he would be that high priest and sit on a throne for his people. And of course, this is tied so closely with these visions that are uh, noted here that uh, we can't really escape the messianic implications of it. Um, chapter 9, we see the clear uh, talk about Jesus coming on a donkey, right? The writer is talking about salvation for Israel. Israel will be defended. And who's going to deliver this uh, this nation? Oh, this king that's coming on a donkey. And who is this king? Jesus Christ. We see John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15 as one place. I think uh, Matthew and Mark both have accounts of Christ coming. And John and Matthew, I believe, make the explicit reference to Zechariah. Um, but the king is coming. He's going to bring justice and salvation. He's going to save Israel. Not with physical defense, right? Given we know Christ's mission and why he came, and the New Testament ties this passage directly to Christ and his coming, it's not going to be a physical war, but it's going to be uh, 
salvation, uh, uh, spiritually speaking, of uh, the people. There's going to be spiritual rejuvenation and salvation uh, among the people of Israel. Um, and then I think in, in you know, verse 11, we can see a passing reference to what likely might be the, the covenant of grace. The blood of the covenant is mentioned here. Um, and we know mm -hmm. from Hebrews that no covenant is ratified without uh, without blood, at least in the new covenant context. So I think mm -hmm. that we can pull some similarities there. Uh, chapter 12, they will look on him who they have pierced. Another explicit uh, allusion to Christ. And we do see, um, I believe it's in John, does actually quote this passage uh, referencing Jesus being stabbed with the spear. Um, so again, these are all tied together. And it's interesting uh, in some of these key places where Israel is mentioned as being saved, Christological language is used directly with it. It's not as if there's a separate event that's coming and then Christ is just somehow a footnote or, or somehow parenthetical to the whole situation. He's tied directly to the salvation of Israel. So in, in knowing what Christ did, it can't just be a reference or it can't be a reference to any kind of physical salvation. It has to be spiritual rejuvenation at that point. <laughs> and then you have the zenith of the passage in chapter 14, where you see all these people, and it, it talks about the nations are going to worship God. They're going to worship the king, and the king has already been established in chapter 9 as Christ. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting, too, this king is identified as Yahweh or Jehovah uh, in Zechariah 14. Um, so all of this, it seems, the salvation of Israel, the protection of Israel, the shepherd, the day of the Lord is all leading up to worshiping mm. Jesus Christ. Um, it was really uh, I was getting excited as I was reading it because I, I haven't really dived into Zechariah. It's one of those minor prophets that, you know, you read, but you don't really read. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. And when you're reading it in something like this and really going through it verse by verse. Um, it's, it's just like, how can you not read this with a Christological lens? I mean, it, it's just so clear to me that these, um, these passages are talking about Christ and ultimately all of Israel's enemies are going to lay down their swords because they're saved, not because they're, uh, being fought with physical swords, but they're being saved mm -hmm. and God is defending Israel by bringing the nations under the new covenant. Uh, so I think right. it's, it's pretty neat. Right. No, no. I mean, I'm getting excited just thinking about this, thinking yeah. about uh, fulfillment and just the beauty of scripture. Uh, our confession talks about the uh, consent of the parts. Yes. Right? Consent of the parts. Amen. And, and, and the beauty of the doctrine. And, and it's just this reminds me of what our confession says in chapter one. And also this notion of I think there's I think it was Spurgeon or one of our other predecessors that alludes to Christ as like the sum and substance of scripture right? Yes. That basically seeing Christ everywhere. So this notion where the moment man falls into sin, Genesis 3.15 is on the scene. And Genesis 3.15 mm -hmm. then becomes the key by which I can understand much of scripture. Uh, again, this is what Dr. Dr. Barcelos talks about in terms of the end is better than the beginning and, the, and those sorts of motifs, right? This is where, like, this is Christian contemplation right here. This is the beauty of doing theology in a covenantal mode and connecting dots rather than uh, the sort of newspaper theology where I'm trying to uh, basically eisegete revelation and try to look for correlations between global developments. 
a particular reading right. in, in certain passages. Uh, no, it, it's about Christ. It's about how yes. Christ fulfills all this stuff fully and truly. Amen. And I would therefore argue that this notion of a spiritual kingdom where Christ is presently, not tentatively, yep. presently reigning over an international transnational church mm -hmm. that is on a pilgrim march through the ages, evangelizing, discipling, partaking of the Lord's Supper, baptizing, preaching, disciplining Christians. That is glorious. We are plundering condemned sinners from the gates of hell, Matthew 16, 18. And putting aside some of these distinctions between a mill and post mill, what I've just described needs to be the fuel for Christian devotion and public service in church. Our ecclesiology should be motivated by our Christology and the stuff that we've described here. This right here is a much more robust eschatological vision than any sort of Christian Zionism that I've seen. Hmm. And in terms of how we would approach biblical theology, I do not see the logic in a scheme where a superior new covenant epoch will give way to a partial return to the old covenant before we can finally enter the eschaton. Um, again, the next time we go to the Lord's Supper, let's have this sort of thing in mind, that Christ indeed fulfills all the symbolism, all the types, all the foreshadows, all the hints, all the pictures that Israel was looking at. Amen. Amen. All right. So we've we've covered dispensationalism. We've looked at some getting onto the weeds a little bit uh, yeah. as relates to that. Now, just at a very high level, what are some of the distinctions between a dispensational view and what our view, a covenantal theology view would be? Right. Well, uh, uh, what I would ultimately uh, zero in on, and of course, there's lots of other details that could be gotten into. But before we have that next uh, eschatological debate with a pre-mill or something like that, uh, I would concentrate on the issues of types, place of the nation state of Israel, law, and then the issue of continuity and discontinuity. First, on the issue of typology, dispensationalism does not see the New Covenant Church as fulfilling Old Testament types, but rather it sees us as a wholly other thing in this parenthetical church age that interrupts the agenda and the program mm -hmm. where God is dealing with ethnic Israel, uh, about Israel. Rather than a preterist view that sees the Old Covenant as irrevocably terminated in AD 70 or so, and whereby Israel then rejoins the nations and needs to be evangelized just like any other nation. Dispensationalism is inherently futurist in expecting what we would see as old covenant dynamics get reintroduced during the future tribulational or millennial kingdom. Law. This is a biggie uh, because uh, as I was saying before, uh, Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists, and Dutch uh, Reformed will normally concur that the moral law is abiding, uh, as I said earlier, that it is transcendent, universal, transcovenantal, and therefore fully applicable to this day under the normative use of God's law. Uh, dispensationalism, depending on the variant, will balk at that. Um, now, another caveat is that many dispensationalists live and practice better than their doctrine. And what I mean by that is in theory and in principle, some versions of dispensationalism are antinomian and bulk at the entirety of the Decalogue. And yet John MacArthur will refer to the Lord's Day 
in his sermons. And yet others will use Sabbatarian language, even though they're not themselves Sabbatarian. So, uh, and, 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 and others will be very passionate. So for example, in terms of the pro-life cause or in terms of uh, opposing the sexualization of children, which is a huge issue in Canada right now. Uh, so when I make this criticism, it's not to say, oh man, dispensationalists are inherently antinomian or otherwise opposed to the law. It's just to say that in theory and in principle, though, they have a distinct view of the law that is anti-confessional and contrary to what we would hold. So if we're talking to them, we have to be mindful of this. Um, continuity and discontinuity. So the way to think about this is that, again, for us as Reformed Baptists, as Cradle Baptist Covenant theologians, we see both. We would say Presbyterians have excessive continuity. Uh, and it's it's too much in that direction. And with a dispensationalist, I see excessive discontinuity, an excessive disjunction, an excessive distinction between Israel and church. And so from there, when we hear them accuse us of holding to replacement or supersession, we need to come back to the idea of fulfillment. We need to present those passages, for example, in the book of Hebrews, and very patiently and empathetically explain that this is not about racial hatred against Jews vis-a-vis anti-Semitism. This is not about, uh, oh, we just want to dodge what the Bible says. This is about having a more coherent and holistic and organic view of putting the puzzle pieces of scripture together. Uh, this is not theological liberalism. This is not about being allegorical or spiritual in a patristic sense where many church fathers had some, frankly, crazy ideas about certain passages where it's like, how in the world did you get there, <laughs> right? Where, where everything means something else, and now you're in like la-la land, right? This is not what we're doing in covenant theology, right? Uh, and another uh, example of this sort of issue in terms of communication, right? Because if the goal here is to... Uh, uh, give covenant theologians and Reformed Baptist resources by which they can communicate with dispensationalists. We need to be very careful not to straw men them. Mm-hmm. Conversely, it's regrettable, but I, in my notes, I make a reference to a straw man on David Cloud's part, where in an article, he equates covenant theology with Reformed and federal theology. Now, remember, anti-Calvinist bias on his part. Yep. And Cloud proceeds to flatten any sort of distinction between the three forms of unity or the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Confession of Faith, not allowing for any sort of wiggle room between the Dutch and the Presbyterians. So now, you know, Voss, Bovink, and Machen and all those guys are probably scratching their heads right now being like, what do you mean we said the exact same thing? That. <laughs> That's news to us. Right. <laughs> and, and, and the other thing in Cloud's article is that he makes zero reference to even the possibility of a cradle Baptist covenant theology. Mm, And so I bring that up to say this, Uh, even for myself, we have to be gracious that the vast majority of evangelicals are not in doctrinal church environments where they have opportunity to compare and contrast competing views the way we do all the time in our circles. And in lieu of that, the vast majority of evangelicals, as far as they're concerned, this is basically about John MacArthur versus R.C. Sproul. What I mean by that is it's like either you're a cradle Baptist dispensationalist or you're a paedo Baptist covenant theologian. 
Yep. Now, again, we both know that's not accurate. Yep. We both know that that's a false dilemma. But unfortunately, this is what we have to deal with. This is this is the, the, the problem. And it's about education. It's about continuing to write good books like Mystery of Christ, Sam Renahan. It's about continuing to teach. It's about the sermon series that our pastors are delivering day in, day out, week in, week out. Uh, and just bringing stuff up and saying, look, this is how we can connect the dots. Here is Christological application in the book of Zechariah, like what you did earlier. This is the beauty of scripture. This is how the consent of parts. And hopefully over time, like I've spent 10 years in my church now, uh, there will be a cumulative effect where incrementally over time, people will come to appreciate how scripture fits together. And I think that over time, the superiority of covenant theology arguments will win the day. But in the interim, we're in a very strange cultural moment where we have to deal with a lot of straw men, a lot of misrepresentation, and a lot of false dichotomies. And so I want to admonish the brethren to be gracious, to be patient, but also to be confident that we have the goods. We have biblical, right. theological, and historical warrant for what we believe. Uh, we have superior precedent. Uh, we have uh, strong scholarship in the Reformed Baptist world as represented by RBS and CBTS. So let's work hard. Let's study hard. Let's know our stuff and feel good about it. At the same time, trying to be patient with people who have never been exposed to the cradle Baptist covenant theology that we take for granted. Yeah, that seemed to be the case when I was reading Cloud. He he definitely represented the covenant theology side as being Presbyterian, essentially. I don't think he specifically said Presbyterian, but his his understanding of covenant theology was, you know, you have this one singular covenant throughout church, throughout redemptive history, and it's covenant mm -hmm. grace. And I was like, oh, that sounds like Presbyterianism to some extent, you know, that that's yeah. not what we believe. <laughs> Yeah. But, so in, in my notes, I, I mentioned that we're not just talking about abstract theoretical hermeneutics. Right. This is a lot bigger than linguistics and rhetorical devices and language and exegesis and how to interpret individual passages. No. First of all, this is about biblical theology. This is about having a cohesive view of redemptive history that is sensitive to and attentive to the broader trajectory of scripture as a whole. Uh, this is about then contemplating scripture in a more faithful and historically uh, robust way. Mm -hmm. And then when we talk about systematic theology, one of the things that I'm so fascinated by is how one issue, one difference, one tiny thing, something like, for example, the doctrine of divine impassibility can be the string that destroys the entire uh, ball of yarn. Mm. So you pull one out and now the whole thing comes undone. Right. Or you pull one thread and your whole tie falls apart. Yep. In the same way, when we talk about dispensational versus covenant, huge implications systematically. First of all, as I alluded to before, not necessarily, but for some people, dispensationalism can end up anchoring in Arminianism a conditionality in the New Covenant era in some cases. Eschatology. We've talked a lot about the futurism and the premillennialism. Practical theology. Okay, so for instance, if I was a pre-trib rapture person vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis the Left Behind novels, which were very famous about 20 years ago. Those. Yeah. And if I think the rapture is around the corner, 
I'm going to be less motivated in some cases to invest in the next generation because we're so close mm. to the end of the world. We're so close to being raptured anyway. Why do I need to worry about going to seminary when I've got a limited time to evangelize as many people as possible before the rapture? Or like those sorts of things. Now, again, it doesn't necessarily or logically follow even from within the system, but practically knowing how human beings think, these are some of the things that go on in the back of people's minds. Mm. And so the idea is that if you think of pre-trip rapture or if you think uh, Zionism or, or that um, Israel is the central the uh, center of the political universe, that's going to affect how you vote. That's going to affect how you think about politics. Yep. That's going to affect uh, your ecclesiology where you prioritize evangelism over discipleship because we have a limited time window. Sacramentology. Uh, this motif where we're under grace rather than under law, and therefore we don't believe in having a regenerate church membership, and we're not going to discipline people for not showing up to the Lord's Supper. Mm. You're going to have a weak in sacramentology in some cases. Now, caveat, independent Baptists are notorious for a rather unique approach to church membership that is very strong. Uh, there are people who have been booted out of churches for drinking alcohol, for example. Right. So notwithstanding independent Baptists who have in a centric ecclesiology for other reasons. I look at mainstream evangelicalism though, mm -hmm. and many mega churches that don't even have a Baptist approach to church membership. And I wonder if their eschatology and therefore their hermeneutics is driving or somehow affecting them when they think about those things. Uh, ethics. So look, if you don't think the Decalog is binding today, if you don't think the Sabbath is still in play today, mm -hmm. what about it? Like antinomianism, uh, uh, you know, going to the beach instead of going to church and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, something very abstract over here is going to translate into, okay, why not? Why not do church on Saturday night so I can go to the beach on Sunday? Right. Why not do uh, certain things? Or, uh, oh, uh, this isn't banned or, or this ban or this prohibition from Leviticus isn't reiterated. I can go ahead. So the idea being is, look, um, as well, we think about the preaching of the law. So it's very common for evangelicals to accuse to reform people of being pharisaical, legalist. Uh, you're about the letter rather than about the spirit and mm -hmm. such utter empty rhetoric. I would suggest, again, not necessarily, it doesn't automatically necessarily follow, but dispensationalism is in play because if you don't have a strong view of the law, you're going to resist that normative use. You're going to resist a reformed application. You're going to read the Westminster Larger Catechism and be like, how on earth do you go from the seventh commandment banning adultery to therefore you got to be chaste and modest? Right. Modern evangelicals are going to bulk out of a lot of the confessional ethics that we hold to. Right. Or, for example, what you see in the catechism, because they're not thinking in those categories. And again, the law is not for us. It's for Israel. A lot of people are going to go that far. Now, politics. I, I, I realize that um, I'm going to hold to a view that many Christians find deeply offensive and troubling. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the reality is that dispensationalism goes hand in glove with Christian Zionism. Uh, briefly about this. So Christian Zionism would be a flavor of Zionism that is, um, um, so say, indistinct from a political Zionism uh, that we saw in history, 
Christian Zionism, as represented by John Hagee or some of these others, is this notion that Christians have to support the Israeli national state uh, no matter what. Uh, sometimes Christian Zionism is merged with something of a prosperity gospel idea. So basically, Genesis 12, verse 3, God will bless those who bless Israel. And therefore, we should be sending money and resources to support Jewish settlements in the occupied Palestinian territories so that we can earn or merit God's blessings or get a spiritual return on these quote-unquote investments. Now, at a historical level, I would suggest that the miraculous founding, quote-unquote, of Israel in 1948 was a self-fulfilling prophecy precisely because many Christians had given a lot of money uh, to the World Zionist Organization prior to that point, headed by Theodore Herzl. And further, um, a lot of Christians, both outside and inside governments of Britain, Canada, America, etc., were pushing the Zionist agenda for many years prior to 1948. So what happened in 1948 did not emerge out of nowhere. It did not emerge out of a vacuum, but it was decades in planning prior to that point. Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, declares independence in May 1948. This was in the middle of an ongoing civil war that had been going on since the UN uh, passed Resolution 181 and talked about partitioning Palestine. So imagine declaring independence in the middle of a civil war. There was a lot of bloodshed in that year. Mm. And what happened was that Israel immediately secured a lot of international recognition. Yep. As Dr. Norman Finkelstein explains, Resolution 181 and the international consensus at the time in the 40s was basically Israel's birth certificate. Mm. Now, the exact same birth certificate that should have given a nation state to the Palestinian side did not come into fruition because of the ongoing civil war that happened. So now if the civil war phase, which was followed by the, quote, war for Israeli independence in 48 and 49, and because the Arab side was so disorganized, Israel won the day, and therefore what was supposed to be a 50-50 split turned into more of a 60-40 split with the green line in 49. Now, without getting into all the ins and outs of the uh, wars in 67 and 73, the first and second antifadas, and uh, you could spend an entire history seminar, or uh, uh, I should say semester, as I did in university, on this stuff. It's deeply fascinating stuff. But the biggest takeaway that I want to bring to people's attention here is that it was socially engineered. It was not this miracle, but rather it was the inevitable result of various things that were happening in international politics during the first half of the 20th century. Mm. And therefore, this notion of eschatological significance seems spurious to me, given my familiarity with the history and the politics of, of what happened prior. Now, I also want to talk about the issue of empathy for a second. I am to this day mortified that I just accepted the Zionist narrative full stop because, for example, I was not aware that there were Palestinian Christians sandwiched between the Zionist side and the Arab mm. slash Muslim side. Right now, as we sit here in North America, there are Palestinian Christians living in absolute poverty that are being persecuted on all sides. They are absolutely sandwiched. They are sitting under the most unbelievable occupation you could imagine on the part of the Israeli military. And yet they are in some cases being mistreated by their Palestinian Muslim neighbors for other reasons. So first of all, we need to empathize with that category of Palestinian Christian. Second, when we read authors like Edward Said, 
and others. Uh, it's deeply moving um, because as Christians, we often just assume it's like this Jewish versus Muslim thing. And like I said, no, there are believers, there are brothers and sisters in that part of the world suffering, and yet we're going to blindly support one of the factions that's responsible for the persecution of our brothers and sisters. And then there's this people in Israel that are not necessarily Jews. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so, so this is where I want to make the point that in the midst of talking about dispensationalism and so on and so forth, one of the byproducts is that I think a lot of Christians are um, not looking at the political world properly. Mm. And therefore we are inconsistent in our advocacy of human rights to where the human rights of, for example, those Palestinian Christians are in jeopardy on a daily basis during the Israeli occupation. And I'm personally deeply frustrated that I did not know better up until going to a secular university to realize that my theological and political biases were responsible and directly contributing to the very real suffering of very real people, mm. including those who right now are barely surviving in a Gaza Strip that in some cases has been described as the world's biggest open-air concentration camp. Mm. That's scary stuff that some very charismatic rhetoric in North America is leading to dire humanitarian consequences elsewhere in the world. Because for whatever reason, we can't look past some prejudices. And so I just want to encourage people, do some reading, do some thinking, ask some questions, and ask yourself, is your worldview genuinely biblical? And even if it's uncomfortable, what does it mean to apply the biblical worldview in some of these other areas? And uh, therefore, that's where I got to give credit to Edward Said and Dr. Norman Finkelstein in particular as two examples of authors that have strongly influenced uh, basically a lot of change in terms of how I think about the Middle East. And therefore, that's like the political application of some of this theological stuff to where as I shifted away from dispensationalism, it also gave me the opportunity then to shift my views in some of these other areas in terms of the secular political world. So in short, bad eschatology has led to horrific consequences for the indigenous Palestinian population and the systemic denial of internationally recognized human rights in that case over the past 75 years. And like I said, I, I think the situation is deeply regrettable and possibly one of the biggest scandals in 20th century Christianity in terms mm -hmm. of what we are materially responsible for in terms of decades of ugly suffering. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Cause that's all that tends to be the narrative here. Israel, good Palestinian, bad. Oh, look, the Palestinians are shooting rockets at the Israelis. Oh, everyone get all bent out of shape about it. Um, but not necessarily looking at those nuances. And especially like you said, what are their Christians on either side. I mean, would the dispensationalist side even dare to consider that there might even be Christians on the Palestinian side, or do they just look through a bias of, oh, they're Palestinian, they're the enemies of Israel, we can't, you know, have anything to do with them. That would be an interesting thing to look into, but I yeah. can imagine uh, there is bias even at that point, just because of they're considered the enemies of Israel. Yeah. Uh, one other point I'm going to add, too, is that when we talk about, for example, Assyrian Christians or mm -hmm. some of these other believers that are on the margins, 
I want to encourage people to cultivate a, first of all, uh, missions, a, a, a missiological mindset, mm. just to be sensitive to these Christian minorities on the periphery. So when we talk about ISIS, for example, and what ISIS has done, terrible, ugly stuff, we got to be sensitive to imagine being a believer. Imagine if you were 10 miles away from ISIS-controlled territory, what would that be like? And even if we don't know people's names, we should be praying that God would sustain and preserve his churches that are mm -hmm. trying to preach the gospel under occupation of Israel or under uh, you know, these other forces that we hear about in the news. When we hear about wars and these things in other parts of the world, we hear about civil war in Africa or some of these things, I think it's just healthy to be in the mindset of, God, use those circumstances to work. Bring people to yourself. Mm -hmm. Give our brethren the resources and the grace that they need to preach the gospel and reach people. Right now, there's a civil war that's in progress in a country called Myanmar or Burma. My church has been praying for a missionary there and um, some other uh, resources that are being deployed there. And on a weekly or somewhat regular basis, we're hearing about orphans, people dying in the war, uh, refugees. Uh, in, they're called internally displaced people. So like in, technically an international refugee is somebody that goes from one country to another. And then we use this acronym IDP or um, internally displaced persons. So these are people that are internally displaced in and within the nation state of Burma. But I'm not sure if people realize the scope of the humanitarian catastrophe that's enveloped that country. And yet there are believers ministering to the needy and preaching the gospel on under civil war conditions. So again, when we hear about this sort of thing, let's not despair and lose hope. God is on the throne. Christ is reigning and ruling. Mm -hmm. He will make his enemies a footstool, as scripture says. But let's pray for our brethren as they are dealing with these circumstances. But so there's a missions piece. There's the ecclesiastical piece. Um, but there's also a, a mindful piece of things are more complicated than they appear. There are all these subcategories and nuances in these other parts of the world. So as we said a moment ago, instead of saying X good, Y bad, what if there's like 10 subcategories within X, 10 subcategories under Y, what if that these are just sinners or unbelievers that are coming after each other, consistent mm -hmm. with their Adamic natures, and therefore we need to look and use a gospel lens and use a biblical lens to where now it's not about taking one side or the other, it's about, okay, what does the Great Commission look like when applied to that? And that's where we need to sort of potentially review our sort of view of the broader world outside North America and just be careful that we don't have theological views that lead to what are ultimately betrayals of how these other people are image bearers. Amen. Amen. Yep. We need to have that missions mindset. Amen. Yeah. All right. So, so as we close out, you had some resources you wanted yes. to talk about. Yes. Yes. So, I'll, so basically <laughs> it, it's kind of amusing because uh, sometimes I've felt compelled to uh, basically give footnotes to certain conversations that I've had. And so <laughs> for once uh, it's needed. Right. So um, obviously we alluded to David Cloud. Um, yep. if, if you guys want to find his website, that's wayoflife.org. And you can look up some of his books or some of his materials that we were citing here. Um, Michael Vlach, V-L-A-C-H, wrote several books, one of which has been assigned uh, by Dr. Scheider in his es eschatology class. Um, the, the point would be that Vlach appears to be a more responsible advocate of dispensationalism. So if we're looking to read, quote unquote, the other side and we're trying to eliminate Strawman, then uh, I would look at some of his material. I cannot recommend Dr. Sam Renahan's Mystery of Christ highly enough. 
I think that if you're a Baptist and you're trying to understand Cradle Baptist Covenant Theology, you need that book in a hurry. And between Renahan's book and uh, Pascal Denault's book about, I think it's the distinctiveness of Cradle Baptist. Yeah, the distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So between uh, Denault's work and Renahan's work, if you can read those two books, you're well on your way. Like that's a very good starting point in terms of understanding uh, uh, Cradle Baptist Covenant Theology. Vern Poitras uh, wrote a book called Understanding Dispensationalists. It's available for free on the website that he shares with John Frame. Uh, mm. So now, admittedly, not Baptist, to the best of my knowledge, but that would be a good starting point if you're looking to understand dispensationalism further. Uh, Donald M. Lewis has written multiple works on Christian Zionism, including A Short History of Christian Zionism. So if you're looking to get more information about the Zionist piece, uh, look at that. Uh, earlier, we mentioned Charles Ryrie. I forget the name of Ryrie's book, but Ryrie has a very high profile book from like the 1960s that most dispensationalists are looking at too. So I would look at that as illustrative of that modified mid 20th century dispensationalism. Uh, Pastor Mark Fitzpatrick of the Iran Reformed Baptist Church in Dublin, Ireland. Now, you might wonder, how does a kid in Chilliwack, Canada know anything about Ireland? Well, I didn't, but there's a guy called Paul Flynn who had a podcast called Megiddo Radio. And uh, now Flynn uh, went from being independent Baptist, heavily influenced by David Cloud, no less, to being a Reformed Baptist and ultimately a Presbyterian. Uh, it was very interesting listening to his podcast and thus seeing how he navigated all those things. It was very similar to my journey, minus the Presbyterian bit. So I think I'm uh, familiar with Mark, actually. Um, there was a man that uh, he attended our church for a while from Ireland, and I believe that was his pastor. There you go. There you the go. The name sounded familiar. I was like, yeah, I think I've seen him. Yeah. So, so Fitzpatrick was Flynn's pastor at one point. Okay. Okay. But Fitzpatrick did a fantastic sermon series explaining his concerns with Ryrie in particular. Uh, so I've, I've linked to that in my notes. Um, lastly, there's a 10-minute clip that uh, Free Grace did uh, where Pastor Butler does like a 10-minute, like, I know it's 100 miles an hour for 10 minutes, right? But if, right. You can, if you can digest those 10 minutes, that was one of the best introductions to this issue of covenant versus dispensationalism versus the Pedal Baptist approach that I've seen. So if you're looking for high-level 10 minutes, go there. That was a brilliant summary. And if you're not going to read a 200 page or whatever, listen to 10 minutes and that will get you going. So, Fantastic. Well, brother, I thank you for your time today. Um, this is very helpful. Good deep dive. You have to with things like this just because of how nuanced they are and, and there's so much there. But I appreciate your time and for joining me today. Uh, my pleasure. We should do this again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, I and... definitely want to do this again. And um you know, we'll, yeah. we'll see what other topics we can cover, but everyone have a great weekend and a great Lord's day tomorrow as we Amen. worship our Lord. Um, but Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Take care.